Welcome to the World Challenge Pulpit Series on the Book of Psalms. We're going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word, looking in depth into the Word of God. We hope we're speaking to people with hungry hearts who long for the Word of God, who desire to be all that God wants them to be, and desires for, for, to see God exalted, lifted up high and lofty as He truly is. To see Him as He truly is would be a great result of this teaching. We've already done Psalm 1 through 12 in another series that's already been recorded and available to you. And uh, just recently we've started on chapter 13 and we'll go through 24. Uh, there's some workbooks available at worldchallenge.org as well. And we'd love for you to follow along. Today we are looking at Psalm chapter 15, a powerful psalm. And I've given a title to this and I believe it's a title that is important for the generation that we're living in and important for the church and the environment and the culture of our church in this hour. And it's called Who? can stand before a holy God. Let me read the chapter to you. It's a short five verses, and then I'll pray, and we'll go through each verse. Psalm 15, verse 1, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blameless and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and it does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money to interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved or another Hebrew word for move there could be shaken. The English translation would be not be shaken, never be moved, not be shaken. Who can stand before holy God? Father God, I thank you for the, the delight to be able to communicate your word. And I would be so ever more delighted if you would allow the Holy Spirit to empower my ability to speak this word. And I would be so grateful if you would touch those who are listening, God, and give them ears to hear and hearts that are open and minds that would just explode with joy over what God you have done for us in your word. I thank you that I don't have to try to manipulate anyone. Thank you that I don't have to <clears throat> be clever. I don't have to be uh, in, in my own ingenuity coming up with things that are intriguing or entertaining. I just have to simply put my finger in the word and say, this is the Lord's word. Thus saith the Lord. And I thank you, God, that I can conclude this sermon today knowing in full confidence that it's not about me, it's all about you. And we thank you for this book of Psalms that teaches us how to dig into you, how to love you, how to grow in you, how to more acknowledge you as, as an everyday part of our life, how to have faith, how to overcome the evil one. How to, and, and then today, we particularly want to ask you to grant us the wisdom and insight of, of what kind of person we can be to enter into the most holy of holies, the presence of God, we, and, and, and we thank you that we can, but we don't come glibly or lightly. We don't come um, thinking we deserve it or we're so honorable that uh, you stand aside and let us do whatever we want, God. You're a holy God and you demand righteousness, but we thank you that you also make a way for it. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The Psalm of David, verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? 
the first thing we see here is that there's a movement. First, it's a sojourn. Sojourn speaks of traveling. Sojourn speaks of being present and then leaving, uh, stopping by somebody's place, but moving on to a different journey. You're not journeying to just a destination. You are on a sojourn. And, and so we are thankful that the, we get to see this thing saying we get to sojourn into the Lord's presence. But I'm also thankful that David doesn't stop there. The Psalm doesn't stop there. It says, who shall dwell on the holy hill. The, the desire of God and us being in his presence, us being touched by his presence, us being moved by his presence, us being broken by his presence, us bowing in reverence before his presence, the, the heart of God in this is not just a touch, it's not just a, a random move of God, but it's the presence of God and us dwelling in it. It's not just a touch of God, it's the dwelling of God in our life. Who, who gets to do this? Who gets to sojourn and come into his presence? Who gets then to dwell in this place of the holy hill? I believe David is asking a question here that is born out of a, a reverence, a deep, deep reverence, greatly missing, not only in our culture, but even in our churches. We would expect the outside culture of the kingdom of God to lack a certain amount of reverence, although some might have uh, maybe a historical uh, uh, impact of the gospel in their life to some degree, so there's a, a sort of kind of an ancient reverence that's still instilled in their life. Um, and so you might expect some reverence, but a lot of it is certainly, as you see culture today, as you see the education system today, as you see government today, as you see policies being made today, uh, a, a total irreverence for the Word of God, the commands of God, the heart of God, and certainly dwelling in, in the place of reverence with God. But in reality, the, the, as, as a Christian leader, the thing that grieves me the most is when a church lacks this kind of reverence. They, 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 there's the sense of, I, I come glibly into his presence. I come lightly into his presence. I believe this is born out of the self-esteem movement, the pop psychology culture that has not only just been a part of culture now, but has been infiltrated uh, into the church. The church now has become what I would call the chaplain of the of the self-help movement. We tag on a few verses. We put the name of Jesus and we pray at the beginning and maybe at the end and we sing Christian songs and we call that reverence for God. We call that holiness. We call that dwelling in the presence of the Lord. Oftentimes it's more emotional. It's more a feeling-based than it is word-based. And because of the overemphasis of our self-esteem and our overestimation of our self-worth, that's all we hear it seems, Culture, certainly, but even in churches, you're valuable, you're worthy, you're good, you're, 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 you're just the way you are. You don't need to change anything. Just uh, God would be honored if you would just become his friend uh, rather than saying God requires a holiness for us to enter into his presence. This self-worth is, is an overestimation of the self at the same time an underestimation of the holiness of God. We have grandiose views of ourself we have a, a higher, and the higher we look upon ourselves, the converse thing happens is we look lower upon God. We see ourselves as being the most important thing, and what God calls us to walk in righteousness and holiness is a diminished uh, desire in our heart now because our desires become first. I would say we are looking at God through the wrong lens of the telescope. Have you ever done that before? You look through the telescope, if you were to turn it around the wrong way, the image that you're looking at appears smaller than it actually is. And the goal of a telescope is to enlarge that thing. Now, certainly we understand God can't be enlarged. He is 
He is beyond measure, beyond understanding. His scope is limitless. Uh, so we're not talking about actually making God bigger, but we get a bigger view of God when we view him <clears throat> the right way. And so we're coming into his presence. We're dwelling in the holy hill. This is a really important question. And it's a question not asked very often anymore. Who gets to do this? Who, who can come into the presence? I want to tell you, I'm not on a mission to make you feel good about yourself or to bolster your self-esteem. There are thousands of preachers uh, you can get to do that for you. I'm on a mission to get you to look through the correct end of the telescope at a God who is huge, immense, immeasurable, beyond comprehension, to see him as glorious, to see him as holy, to see him as omnipotent, omnipresent, to see him as omniscient, knowing all things, to see him as the God that he truly is, far above all that we could think or imagine. And that in doing so, we get to see ourselves more properly once again, not as a pop psychology world, a self-esteem world, a comfort and pleasure world would have us to see ourselves, but through the proper lens of seeing God, the proper lens also, secondly, of seeing ourselves, putting God first. And if we don't do this, our image of God is, is not the highest, it's not the holiness. God then is not the most important thing in our life. We become uh, the priority, number one, God into number two, that's breaking the first command, have no other God before me. Don't put anything before me. Don't put anything ahead of me. And, and in all that I'm saying to you, I want you to understand something. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that, that you're not loved by God because God loves you more deeply than you could ever imagine. He loves you more deeply than every person in the universe ever created could, uh, if you put all that love together and, and, and poured it out upon you, it would pale in comparison to the Father's heart of God for you, the love of, that he has for you, how valuable you are for him. You couldn't comprehend it. You, you, <clears throat> but oftentimes we say, I'm so valuable, I'm so worthy, I'm so good, I'm so important that God is lucky to have me. Rather than saying, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a miserable sinner, and I need to come humbly before God, and I need him to change my heart if I'm going to come as a righteous person into his presence. Now, as you hear me speak this, you might be, uh, I want to ask you, are you becoming offended? Are, are you becoming, are you defending your great self-esteem and your great worth? Are you feeling that, that, that I am diminishing you? Well, if so, I want to be loving and kind to you, but I also want to speak the truth in love, but also the truth clearly, that you've been hoodwinked by culture, that you've been hoodwinked by a false teaching within the church, that, that you have bought into the American, modern American culture that's flooding the church today that, that says anyone can get into God's presence. We paint a picture of a desperate, lonely God wishing just someone would come into his presence and, and we'll do all we can to get him to come in. We'll, we'll put on entertainment and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll sing songs that are attractive to the world and we'll preach messages that, that uh, stroke your ego and make you want to come back to feel good, these feel-good messages we, we're, and God is watching all this, just saying, as long as I get some people to come in. No, he demands holiness in his presence. He requires the people of God who would come and either sojourn or more importantly, dwell with him to be holy people set apart, something happening in their heart because nothing unclean can come into his presence. And that's what we're gonna talk about, how to get there in just a little bit. I didn't come here today for the millionth time to tell you the same thing you're hearing whether it be in your family or in your school or in your church, uh, that, that God 
uh, is here to fulfill your wildest dreams and that God exists to serve you in fulfilling that destiny. I'm here to tell you that your self-esteem won't save you. Feeling good about yourself rather than saving you actually could lead to pride and pride comes before a fall. Too high a view of self hinders the humility and the brokenness required to realize that we are fallen sinners and we are in need of a savior. Not demigods worthy of worship with a sense of entitlement that actually holds no merit before God. Do you find yourself living in a culture that has influenced you to feel so good about yourself that that you no longer see a need for a savior? Someone who's already right with God, someone who's already clean and pure and worthy and valuable in, in their own self, in their own righteousness, really is not in need of, 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 of the desperation of, of the blood being shed for you, of the cross demonstrating God's love for you, but also God's wrath towards sin, the sin that we commit in our life, the, 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 the moves away and the rebellion from God. This, this is a sense of entitlement that we don't need a Savior. We don't need the blood of Jesus. We don't need the cross a life that's full of self-esteem oftentimes is a life that's missing the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a self-centered life rather than a cross-driven life. If we remain by this self-help pop psychology that has dominated our church and our generation, we end up changing the gospel. It becomes more about a flourish, flourishing life than it does a holy life. It becomes more about being a successful, having a successful life than it does about a sanctified life. It becomes a self-centered life rather than a Christ-centered life. The message then becomes believe in yourself. And that message, believe in yourself, has replaced the message of bow before a holy God. It might be time to shift our focus, even though it could be a right focus, the focus of I'm a king's kid, and that's a good focus, but maybe we could shift that a little bit and not just prioritize who we are as a king's kid. Rather than saying I'm a king's kid, say behold your God. Behold the King of kings. Behold the Lord of lords. Behold the one high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filling the temple, and he is exalted. And we come humbly before him. We come saying, we need you, God, to do something first in our life to cause us to be able to come into your presence. We don't come in lightly, esteeming ourselves highly, <clears throat> saying that we have no need of transformation. We believe we need to be changed, transformed to come into your presence not meaning to be unkind here, but I am exhausted with, and by the tiresome dribble uh, for multi, that comes from multitude of uh, pulpits and pens that sp spends far more time exalting men than they do exalting God, talking about what we can do more than what God has done for us. And as a result, we're diminishing the authority of his word. If we think we're fine, we don't need correction. We don't need rebuke. We don't need training in righteousness. We think we are already there, already have it all. So, so we come glibly, as I said earlier, into his presence. And we sit in our sanctuaries with coffee and donuts. And we, we we're texting while laser beams shoot across the darkened auditorium, the smoke-filled auditorium. And the music is blaring. And there's more of a concert than worship and more of a pep talk or a TED talk than there is a preaching of the word of God. It's all foolishness. And it's an abomination in the presence of God. And what it does then is it lowers the esteem for not only God himself, but his word. And, 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 and therefore, we, we come to it and we, we take parcels of it. We take pieces of it that we like for ourselves. And there are certain quotes that we love, that, uh, that, that things that are possibility thinking type scriptures, but we don't take the rebuke type scriptures. This comes from a low esteem of God and a high esteem of ourselves. 
we live in a self-esteem world. We attend self-esteem churches. We preach self-esteem messages and sing self-esteem songs. And we are no longer being led by preachers of righteousness, but by false prophets of the kingdom of self. The reverence of which David asked this question in Psalms 15.1 is born out of an awareness of the fallen nature of the human race. He's not expecting anybody to walk freely into the presence of God. He's, he's curious about this. He's hungry for this. He's thirsting for this. He's on a diligence, heart-rending search for the truth of this thing. And, and the reality is David is asking this first verse in context if you understand context, we don't just read one verse. We read the context of the chapter. We read the context of the chapter before it. And I believe not only is the Word of God inspired, but I believe the way the, 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 the books are put together, Genesis at the beginning, Revelation at the end, Psalm 1 being at the beginning, Psalm 150 at the end, and everything in between is just as inspired by God as the actual words of God themselves. There's an, there's an inspired context placed so we read one thing after another, and it helps open our eyes to this. So I believe that the Holy Spirit intentionally put this question right after Psalm 14. And, and in Psalm 14, David is speaking there about none being righteous, not even one. David has just been writing about the corruption of man's heart and how they do abominable things. He, he's saying he, there's none that seek God. They are, they are all corrupt. And, and then in verse 3 of chapter 14, I'd love for you to open up your Bibles and look there because sometimes you hear things, but if you don't see them for yourself, it doesn't have the same impact to, to taste and see the word of the Lord. And so in, in verse 3 of chapter 14, it says, They all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So it's in this context of a people, in the end of verse 4, they don't even call upon the Lord. It's in the context of 14 that David asked this question. He understands there's none righteous. Paul repeats that in the book of Romans using the, that, that same scripture. There's none righteous, no, not one. And, and David is asking the question, if none are righteous, and this is a good question that we should ask, if none are righteous, not even one, then who gets to sojourn into the tent? Who gets to dwell with the holiest, oh, God in the holy of holies? Who, who is this man? If none are righteous and only the righteous get in, then, then we're in a conundrum. We don't know the next step. Well, the question then is, who's clean enough? Who's pure enough? Who's holy enough? Who's righteous enough? Well, the word of the Lord begins to tackle this issue, and it's so important we, we grasp this. And verse 2, David says, he, here's the answer to the question, who gets to dwell in this holy place of God, this reverent holiness of God? It says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Psalm 14 along with Romans 3, as I just said, tells us that none are righteous, but David is asking the question, how can a righteous man get into his, how can someone be righteous enough to get into his presence? Psalm 14, unrighteousness is undoubtedly not the way into God's holy presence. You, you certainly, you see what I'm saying? You don't get into God's presence by living a Psalm 14 life. Impossible to, to, to be corrupt, to be abominable, to do no good, to not seek after God you're certainly not getting in there. But I would suggest to you that there's a second way that we often try to get in. And, it, and if we look at Psalm 15, we would say, okay, if I do these things that he says, try to be blameless, try to walk what's right, try to speak the truth, don't slander my, with my tongue, don't do evil to my neighbor, don't take up a reproach against my friend, 
If I do all these things, then I'll be righteous and I'll get in. But the problem is nobody does those things. Nobody's righteous. So we're still in this, the word I'm using is conundrum here. We're still stuck in this thing. Galatians 2.16 says, no one is justified by the works of the law. In other words, no one can come into God's presence by working in their own power to be good, to be right with God. That would mean that the answer to David's verse in question one would be no one. But he doesn't say that. How could this be? Another way to look at this question would be to ask, if none are holy and no one is righteous and righteous people can get near to God, and there are people that are dwelling in God's presence, how did they get righteous? How did they get into that place? I want to bring you to the New Testament scripture that I think will blow your mind. I think it's going to show the, 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 the hungry heart of David and that he only saw, if in the New Testament we're seeing through a glass darkly, David saw it through an even darker lens, so to speak. Uh, he, he was looking for this and he saw some, he saw into the future of what God could do for it. And Ephesians chapter 4, again, open your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to see something I think is profound here. And I believe Ephesians 4 is a parallel, is a parallel to Psalm 14 and 15, but now through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ, showing us how to answer this question, showing us how to have peace with God, showing us how to have power with God, showing us how to have presence with God, showing how to be absorbed in the fullness of the things that God has for your life, resulting in joy and abundant life and the grace of God upon you to walk into and live in his presence. How does Ephesians 4 teach us this? Well, I believe verses 17 through, uh, 17 through 19 parallel Psalm 14. Again, remember Psalm 14. If you don't remember, Psalm 14 is talking about the unrighteous, the ungodly, those who don't seek after God, those who are corrupt, those who are abominable, those who don't get in to God's presence. Psalm Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 through 19 echoes those same words. Now, I say this and I testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Psalm verse 1 uh, so, you know, in their heart, the fool says, there is no God. That's the futility of their heart, the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That, that is a description of what David was troubled over in his day in Psalm 14. And then I want to just skip ahead a little bit to verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4 and, and look now at what David is seeing take place in a, in, a, in a righteous person who can dwell. And verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth as of the neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And give no opportunity for the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. And let him who labors do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt, uh, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what such is good for building up and as fits for the occasion that they may give grace to God and those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you and all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has in Christ has forgiven you. You see, the parallel that I'm talking about here, 15 now, as David described uh, this kind of righteous person who doesn't speak evil and he treats his neighbor well and, and he seeks after God, you have this sense of here, the righteous person. The question to me becomes, how does someone who understands Psalm 14 as being 
universal. All of us are uh, under sin, as, as New Testament says, and yet only the righteous can get in, but we can't get in because we're unrighteous, but we can't get in even try, by trying in our own bootstrap, our own self-righteousness. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. Why? It wasn't because he was a murderer, an adulterer, or a fornicator, or a drunkard, a, a, th- a thief. He, he, why would he label himself the chief of sinners? I, I certainly believe is what he thinks about himself is that his own, at one point, he thought his own self-righteousness would save him. He, he thought that by obeying the law to the best of his ability would cause him to be so righteous that he earned a place in God's presence. And once he saw the work of Jesus Christ, he despised his own self-righteousness and said that makes him the chief of sinner, that, 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 that his own, own righteousness was filthy rags. It, it's a description even worse than some of the things that he described in other places as being sin in Scripture. And so how then, if it's not giving up because we're just no one can be righteous or if it's not trying in our own strength to be how how do we how does there a change come from Ephesians 4 17 through 20 and then all of a sudden seeing in 25 through the end of the chapter you see this shift from being alienated in life of God and being callous and giving up to sensuality and greedy practice of all kinds of impurity and then all of a sudden you're seeing people putting aside these things and you're seeing the no corrupt talk and you're seeing them being loving and tender hearted how did that change take place and how do you get to be that kind of person that is now walking in a kind of righteousness that is acceptable to God well here's the key to it I, I, I just love being able to share this with you verse 20 through 24 First thing we need to understand, number one, verse is the first part of verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way. The two things we've been talking about. You didn't learn Christ by lawlessness, by giving into sin and just saying, God doesn't care. He loves me so much I can live any kind of sinful life that I want and he'll still allow me to dwell with him. That's not the way you learn Christ. Nor is it your own self-righteousness. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to bootstrap it. I'm going to, I'm going to keep repenting. And every time I repent, I'm going to promise I'll never commit that sin again. And then you go back to breaking the same promise. That's self-righteousness. That's not the power of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. And so Paul is saying here, that's not the way you learn this. That's not the way to live this life. There's a better way. There's a more powerful way. That's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you, 21, assuming that you have learned about him and we're taught in him, not just taught about him, but you're taught in him. When we're, when we're growing in God and we're discerning the scripture and the scripture is impacting our life, we're not just learning about God through scripture, we are learning in him. We are, we are bathed in him, we are surrounded in him, we are immersed in him, we are covered by him. The Holy Spirit is surrounding us with truth and it's getting inside of our heart. We're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so if that's not the way, then what is the way? Uh, Verse 22 tells us uh, the starting place. If that's the wrong way, here's the right way. First, you put off the old self. But remember, we can't do that in our own self-righteousness. Oh, I got to put off these particular, the way I speak, the way I talk, the way I I live. I got to put that off. That says that belongs to the former manner of your life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. You have to put off those deceitful deceitful desires to say that you have the strength in yourself to put off the old way. That's a deceitful desire. I'm going to, in my own pride, uh, my own self-righteousness, I'm going to be holy, so holy that I can easily walk into God's presence. Those were the ones that Jesus was in conflict with time and time again. It's corruption through deceitful desires. 
but 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 you need the help of the Holy Spirit to put off the old self. And then verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So so you you so the first thing you're saying is, Lord, give me grace to put off this old mind, this old self, this corrupt, deceitful desires. And now, Lord, put in me a new mind, the mind of Christ, the mind of truth, the spirit of truth that's in Christ. And then, Lord, would you do something? Put on the new self. Now, if we're not careful, and we read this without reading the next few words, we could go back to our old works-based mentality or our self-righteousness as being a form of earning our way into God's favor. But you have to look at the next word. You put on the new self, you take off the old self. How? It says it's created. Oh, hallelujah. It's created. It's not man-made. It's not self-imposed vigor, vitality, or human will. It comes from a grace that God puts upon us. I love that word. It's created. What's created? The putting off of the old man, the putting off of the Psalm 14. That's God created that the mind to say, I no longer want to live in Psalm 14. I don't want to live that unrighteous life. And to, to be that Psalm 15 follower of Christ, I, I know I can't do that. I can't put on the new stuff. I can't put on these new truths. I can't, put on, I can't just fake it till I make it. It has to be stronger than that. And what it is, is much stronger. It's something that's created. God spoke into existence, heavens and earth, light and darkness, oceans and land. He spoke, man, and woman, he created them by breathing into them. These are creations of God. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And that same creative power is a power that works in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead by speaking over him, brought him up to life, brings you up to life. It creates in us. And what does he create in us? It's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, hallelujah, and in true holiness, not the manufactured kind of our own strength not the kind that fails us and leaves us unable to do anything that is righteous, to speak the truth in love, to, to be kind to people, to love our neighbors. The, the, this is true righteousness, true holiness. It, it truly enables us to do the next verses, 25 through 31. It's we, all of those things. It's not just creating a new heart, and that's part of it, but he creates all of these things. If, For example, uh, maybe you've had in the past a problem with slandering people. You love to gossip. You spoke bad about them on Facebook. And now God not only created a new heart and saved you, that's justification, but sanctification kicks in now. And he creates in you now a new way of thinking about other people, loving mind rather than a spiteful or resentful mind. And so he's creating realms of sanctification, line upon line, truth upon truth, precept upon precept, uh, problem upon problem what we're facing, these layers after layers, he's dealing with these issues of our heart, causing us to walk in true righteousness and in true holiness. God alone can create alone that which he alone accepts. Only God can create it. No, no other source, uh, no other life can do these things. Would you rather have a bloated self-esteem or be made by God, a person who is now righteous, holy, blameless in his presence, a whole new creation. Many of us oftentimes opt for the self-esteem. I want to feel good about myself. And if Jesus can make me feel good about myself, and if the pastor can preach a sermon to make me feel good about myself, I'll opt into that program rather than into the one that creates a righteousness in me, a holiness in me, a blamelessness in me. But the problem with that is self-righteousness, self-esteem, 
Um, Self-pleasure does not get you right with God. It won't allow you into his presence. You may think you deserve now to become in his presence because you now have this bloated self-esteem, but that is pride and arrogance, and that comes before a fall. But it's only when God creates in you this new creation. Being told you're brilliant, being told you're beautiful, being told you're lovely and wonderful, there are wonderful things to hear. We, who wants to hear the opposite? You're stupid, you're dumb. We want to hear edifying words. And so there is some merit and truth. I, I pray you're not hearing me say we, we have no value or worth. But none of them make you right with God. You cannot be those things. I'm sorry. You can be all of those things. You can be brilliant, beautiful, lovely, and wonderful and still end up in hell. There, there has to be something more. There has to be the imputed righteousness of the cross of Jesus Christ. We would rather not hear that sometimes. That We'd rather hear that we're good and wonderful and perfect in all that we do. But what God wants you to hear is that you're cleansed that you're forgiven, that you're accepted by God, that you can enter into the fullness of his presence. And in that presence, he can create in you a righteousness not of your own that gives you the grace to live a life far beyond what you could think or imagine. This miracle is not only God makes, that makes us acceptable to God, but we're able to dwell now in his holy presence. It transforms us. It leaves behind the Psalm 14 lifestyle of sinful corruption and righteousness of heart and behavior, and it's putting on the new self of Psalm 15. Hallelujah. And then we get to to look at Psalm 15 again, and, and he says we do what's right because God created that in us. He speaks the truth because God created in us. He does not slander, hallelujah, because God created in us. He does no evil to his neighbor. That's by God's grace. He takes no reproach to his friends. That's the glory of God doing something new in our life, in whose eyes the vile person is despised, but who honors the fear of the Lord. It's important to, to, to look at this and, and say, we were once those ones who were vile. And, and now he's saying, don't look on those and say, wow, that's an attractive lifestyle. You see, he's created in us new desires now is what I believe he's saying. He, he, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not loan with interest. In other words, take advantage of people around him. He does not bribe to build up his own uh, uh, self-esteem and his, his, his own kingdom, so to speak. And he who does these things shall never be moved. I love how the question starts with dwell and that it ends with dwell. Not be shaken away from these things. Not, not be able to be moved away from these things, but, but find the truth that comes through the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ, to be able to dwell, to dwell in the house of, of the Lord. This is, this is so precious. And, and uh, we're going to see in the next chapter how more so to dwell in this place. We're going to see how this can be increased. But today we stop here at the 15th chapter and we say, thank you, Lord to give us the ability to walk in these things. We know that we can't walk them in our own strength, but nonetheless, you do require these things to be done. If you look at that list and say, well, it's just a list of works and I don't need to do any of them, then the reality is probably you're not really having that created righteousness. You're thinking in your own strength, but God wants to create something in you that keeps you, that gives you power. Therefore, we live in such a way, if we go through the list again, that that uh, the list is not being done in our own works. It's being done by the creative power of the Holy Spirit. So we go back to verse one one more time, and we ask the question, who gets to sojourn in his tent? Those who God creates through the blood of Jesus Christ, a cleansing of all unrighteousness. 
and is not trying their own works, but the, the, have a, has a clean slate. And then there's an imputed righteousness. We take on the full righteousness of God. He takes all, away all of our sin. He, the, our sin is put upon him on the cross. And then he puts his righteousness into us. Who gets to dwell in the holy hill, the holy of holies, the, the high priest? And who is our high priest? Jesus Christ. And now we are grafted into him. He's the forerunner into this place of holiness, having lived a perfect life and then taking on our sin uh, on the cross and burying it in the grave and now resurrecting us to new life with him. Those whom Jesus has won, those whom Jesus has transformed, those are the ones who get to dwell. Hallelujah. What a joy it is now to dwell in his presence. What a joy it is not only to hear some things about him, not only to sing some songs, not only attend to some church services, not just have a religious experience, not just have an understanding of some doctrinal code, not just having a moral behavior, not just, and those things are, are, are good, but they are alone or insignificant. But what we have now is the imputed righteousness created in us by God himself through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. You're no longer a Psalm 14 person. You're a Psalm 15 person because Jesus made it possible. Isn't that good news? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the good news, the joy of knowing our salvation, the joy of knowing what we could not do ourselves, you've done for us, the joy of knowing the things that seem impossible to to. To, it, it seems quite possible to continue in Psalm 14, unrighteousness. That's just, that's just the flesh living as the flesh. But, but how do we become that 15? And Lord, we thank you that it's, it's because you create righteousness in us. We receive that now, God. We, we thank you that and that by grace. We no longer hold on to the voices of accusation and the condemnation that say you're unrighteous. No, <clears throat> Jesus, you, you have made us clean and the Bible says, what the Lord has made clean, let no man call unclean. Lord, cause us to desist, desist from calling ourselves unclean and, and wallowing in pity and despair. And, and, and Lord, on the converse side, help us not to esteem ourselves so highly that we don't think we need an imputed righteousness from Christ that was finished on, and won not for us on the cross. And we thank you now in the name of Jesus, you're raising up a holy people in a, in a, in a very dark generation. All around us, Lord, is, is corruption. All around us is selfishness. All around us is, as Paul told Timothy, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That's the, that's the culture we're living in, and to some degree we talked today about that's, that's what we're seeing, even experienced in our own churches. But Lord, we thank you that you have a, re a remnant, and you call it a holy remnant. Oftentimes it's a tenth. That word remnant can mean a tenth. Just, just one out of 10, Lord, who would be willing to say, God, uh, give me this full righteousness that comes from you, not from myself. And I give you, th I give, and then in return, I just give you thanks. I give you praise. I, 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 I can walk boldly now into that throne room of grace. I can, I can say my hands are clean, my heart is clean, my conscience has been cleansed because the blood has been applied to the doorpost of my life. The angel of death passes over with no judgment and the, 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 the Christ himself receives us into his dwelling place. We give thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Dwell with God.